So we're continuing in our study in the gospel according to Luke, so you can turn there or look at the printed scriptures that I have for you. But you know, about a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to teach in an underground seminary in Asia about 20 students in this house church movement that would become pastors and leaders in a church planning movement, and all about 19 to 20 years of age which is the perfect age for church planning because they actually get it done. They don't just talk about it. And, uh, and so my topic for the week was the doctrine of the Trinity. And actually, it takes a whole week to teach through the doctrine of the Trinity. It's the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. And we covered it from three angles. We covered it from a theological approach. We covered it from a history approach, a historical approach, and we covered it from a biblical approach about 10 lessons in all. And as is usual in these types of settings that I've been a part of in the past, there's always time for question and answer uh, toward the end. And during such times, you already know that everybody's going to get off topic. I don't know what that is, but some people just can't stay on topic, it seems. But And that usually would range broadly, uh, not necessarily even what we're talking about. And in this particular place that I've been to before, I, I know how it goes, Uh, Most of the questions are related to biblical passages, but not theology. And that's actually one of the biggest serious weaknesses in the house churches, is that they don't know how to think in theological terms. And so as a result, they often end up confusing themselves and their own churches unnecessarily with a variety of passages. And so they'll keep asking the same question over and over again from different passages in the Bible. Whereas if they just had an understanding of some sense of theology, they would see how they fit together. And so we worked on this. Even in the way I would answer questions, I would always take a long time to answer them biblically, theologically, and historically, so that they can understand the fullness of it. But one of their questions on this particular event that I'm remembering came from our passage that we looked at recently in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, where Jesus said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I'm not going to go over the passage again for us. We looked at it at our last message in Luke, and if you missed that, you can watch it online and catch up. But it's a great passage to actually answer a question from context and theology so that people don't get confused, because there are a lot of similar passages in the Bible as well. And I think I answered it well, and they were satisfied with it. But as you remember, verse 27 is followed here today immediately by the transfiguration. And I pointed this out to them as well. It's a sneak peek, if you will, at the glory that's going to be coming with Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into glory and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the power of the church with the gospel and the final glory of the kingdom of God. Again, we understand in verse 27 that Jesus was not talking about some single event He was talking about the whole new age that he inaugurated at the new stage of the kingdom of God that he came preaching. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verse 28, and we'll begin from here. And so continuing, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Amazing passage. You know, the most significant event in the life of Christ between his birth and his passion is his transfiguration. And it often isn't talked about enough in our churches. You see, here it reveals the identity of who he is as the Son of God, and it confirms the plan of redemption through the cross. And that's what we'll learn this morning, that Jesus Christ and his cross are the focus of all of the history of redemption. It all makes sense at the cross and only with the cross. And also, he and his cross is the center of all true spirituality and reality in our life. So we're to marvel at Jesus' glory in Luke as we read it, See his glory shining throughout the event. At the beginning, we see the prophets are discussing his glory. Then his disciples witness it. And finally, his father confirms his glory. You know, Jesus had just said right before this event, about a week earlier in in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And then in verse 27, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so the transfiguration is to be seen first and foremost as confirming the divine plan, the plan of Jesus' suffering on the cross and the subsequent glory that he would receive as the Messiah. It's a moment of awesome self-disclosure of the Son of God and his true glory, open glory, no longer veiled to his disciples. And so we too are supposed to listen, to understand, and to believe as he speaks about his cross and resurrection It's not a small thing to say and to claim that Jesus and his cross are the focus of all the history of redemption. It's not a small thing to say that it's the center of all spirituality. It's the only place where all of Scripture makes sense. And it's the only place where spirituality is going to become real. And so the first of three scenes is his prophets discussing his glory. There's the mountaintop prayer with the disciples in verse 28. And then his actual transfiguration and the meaning of it in verses 29 to 31. And so the passage begins now about eight days after these sayings. So Mark and Matthew have after six days and Luke says about eight days. These are both common ways in the time frame here in the culture to express one week. But the significant part is to say after these sayings. So Luke is tying this together after these sayings in verses 22 through 27. The transfiguration, you see, is very closely tied to Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection, very closely tied to Peter's great confession. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ of God. Very closely tied to that, very closely tied to Jesus promising the kingdom of God to come in glory soon. And it's really important to understand how these are tied together The key verse in our passage today is in verse 35 when God the Father says, listen to him. Listen to him. And we're to listen to him as well and those sayings that he gave us. 
Now, we don't know which mountain he's on. There are a lot of suggestions. Mount Tabor in uh, southern Galilee near Nazareth is the traditional uh, understanding of the place. But it's, uh, of course, much more likely that it's Mount Hermon up near Caesarea Philippi. But uh, it could be Mount Maron in the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. There are a lot of possibilities. We don't know which mountain. But the significance of the mountain has to do with revelation. And we know that from Scripture. Moses received revelation on Mount Sinai, as did Elijah, same mountain probably. And now these favored three disciples, Peter, John, and James, would receive a glorious revelation of Jesus Christ that would supersede Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are going to actually testify to that very fact. And the mountain was a common place for prayer and revelation as well. Only Luke mentions this explicitly, that Jesus' purpose there with his three disciples was to pray. And we should note the implied comparison to Sinai here and understand that Jesus is bringing in a new covenant, a better covenant. And we'll learn more as we go. But in Exodus 24, 15, it says that Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And so the actual transfiguration then and its meaning and its significance comes when it says that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, the clo- his clothing became dazzling white, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Again, prayers mentioned, it's a theme in Luke. So while praying, while in the midst of praying, things start changing, his appearance. His face changes and becomes bright like the sun, it says in Matthew. His clothing actually changes, becomes white like flashing lightning, bleached, as Mark puts it. His personal glory, you see, was so great that it actually changed his clothing. And again, we note the comparison to Moses and the surpassing glory that's revealed in Jesus Christ of this new covenant that would be coming And so if we go back to Exodus in 34, verse 29 and following, we read this. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. And so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. I don't know if you remember all of that. But you know, there's a very close comparison with what Jesus is doing in 2 Corinthians 3. You'll probably want to write this one down. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. and something you can meditate on later, but I'm going to read it to you because it's a direct comparison. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of this glory, which was being brought to an end, 
Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more that which is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Furthermore, In the transfiguration, Jesus appears as this heavenly being that he's already announced his identity, saying he's the Son of Man, that glorious figure in Daniel chapter 7. And it's Jesus' favorite self-designation, the title he gave to himself in verse 22 about the Son of Man must suffer, and then again in verse 26. You see, his transfiguration reveals who he really is. It gives us a preview of the end because it's like he's briefly unveiled unmasked, if you will, for who he really is. In, the, in John's vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 112 and following, we read, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man, again referring to, referring to Jesus, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. You see, all of the history of redemption is tied together in the transfiguration and in the cross that it predicts. You see, Moses and Elijah here are appearing in glory, not the resurrection glory, that hasn't happened yet, but in some type of a heavenly glory with Jesus in his transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah both had a vision of the glory of God on this mountain in history. And now the very glory of God in Jesus Christ the Son is being revealed to them and through them. Why Moses? And why Elijah on this mountain? Why? Speaking simply, Jesus fulfills and supersedes both the glory of Moses and Elijah and their ministries. It ties the whole history of redemption together to have these two men there. You see, they each represent the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets have been completely fulfilled and superseded in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and the granting of the Holy Spirit. The new covenant is here. The old covenant is gone. And they each represent 
promise and fulfillment. Now, all their hopes are fully realized. Everything that they preached about in their earthly ministries, fully realized, fulfilled. They each represent the past and the future as historical figures of the coming kingdom of God and now figures of the future coming. You see, the time is here. In other words, Moses and Elijah further confirm Jesus' personal glory as the Son of God and his redemptive glory as the Redeemer of mankind. His prophets discuss his glory. That's what they talk about. They're, we're to listen in to their discussion and learn from them. Luke alone tells us exactly what they were discussing. And they kept on discussing with Jesus for quite some time. They were discussing his exodus, literally, from this world that would be coming at Jerusalem very soon, his leaving, his departure by the cross. That's how he would leave. And they were discussing the suffering and the death and the future glory of Jesus and everything it would accomplish and how it was all set up from eternity past to be the salvation of humanity. They were discussing how Jesus would fulfill the history of redemption, bringing into reality the new order, summing everything up, that everything would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And they're rejoicing and glorifying in their place that they had in the history of redemption as well, probably talking about Scripture and events and things that all took place and their own personal stake in the cross of Jesus Christ and how it fulfilled their ministries. It would have been an amazing discussion to listen in on. Because Jesus and his cross are the focus of all the history of redemption. They're the focus of Moses' ministry. The focus of Moses' ministry is Jesus. The focus of Elijah's ministry is Jesus. And they're the center of all spiritual reality and life. Moses and Elijah are now testifying to that. That's what they've been talking about. In fact, they're saying that's what we were talking about when we were here. So go back and look for yourself. And read about their ministries and their stories and realize that it's all fulfilled in Jesus, and read it from a New Testament fulfillment perspective. Now, the second scene is when the disciples witness his glory in verses 32 to 33. They finally see it in verse 32, but they're confused in verse 33. And so all of this is going on, and then we read, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were Parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now Luke alone of the gospel writers records that the guys are tired um, and sleepy. Maybe it's the evening time. you know. And so they weren't praying, and so they didn't hear the conversation. And so they're confused. And the brightness of Jesus' glory and the the ongoing discussion with excitement probably about who Jesus is and what he would be doing soon wakes them up into full consciousness. But you see, they missed the glorious discussion between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and it further explains why they misunderstand what's actually going on here and don't know what to say and don't know what to do about it. They're unprepared for the glory because they were unprepared because they weren't praying. They were lazily awake when Jesus took them there to pray. I mean, same kinds of things happen to us when we don't pray as we should. We don't pay attention to Scripture, and we miss out on things, and we end up becoming very confused. 
So, you know, this predicts exactly what's going to happen at Gethsemane. You know that story as well, too. Similar result, they're not praying, so what happens at Gethsemane? They don't understand what's going on and all the things that transpire in that garden and shortly thereafter and the arrest of Jesus and the cross because they're not awake and they're not praying. Well, nevertheless, Jesus is standing there transfigured before him in his true divine glory, open up, which had been veiled, now the veil's lifted momentarily, and they get to see his true essential divinity face to face. I mean, that's awesome. There's no possible way we can describe that or imagine that. And this is the glory that Jesus talked about in John 17, that he's going back to the glory that he had with the Father before, before his incarnation and his taking on of human nature. And that's the glory he's going to be returning to but in a resurrected glory. It's hard to imagine what that would have been like to experience this. I mean, just flat-out awe. I mean, you can't even come close to understanding how blinding that light would be, the profound presence of God, being so near to His glory, being struck with awesome fear. I mean, they've been traveling with Jesus at this point for maybe a year or two, and they've never seen anything like this from Jesus before. And so then they're confused. They're likely thinking that when they wake up, that they woke up into the fullness of the kingdom. I mean, that's what that expression means when, when he says, it's good to be here. It's like, hey guys, I think we died and went to heaven. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. But since they were sleeping when the conversation was going on, they're clueless as to what's really going on around them. I mean, the application and lesson for us should be obvious. It doesn't even need to be stated. Moses and Elijah were in the process of leaving when Peter announces his tabernacle plan. So likely, he wants to build three shrines, symbolizing God's presence, God's rest, God's deliverance, probably patterned after the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament. But Peter wants Moses and Elijah to stay and to honor them. He probably wants to get in on a conversation that he missed. And of course, he would give the greatest honor to Jesus. He would get the biggest shrine, of course, no problem there. But he says this thing out of fear, Mark tells us. Matthew says, if you wish, not knowing what he's saying. And, but, you know, he felt he had to say something. You know, I mean, it's such an awesome revelation. And since he didn't hear the discussion, what he says makes absolutely no sense in context. It's like, what are you talking about? We've all been in those conversations with people where they're not listening, you know, and then they make some comment that's stupid. Well, that's exactly what's going on here. And so, what a contrast, though, with his, with his great confession earlier, just a few verses, a week earlier, when he said, oh, you're the Christ of God. You see, stupid spiritual sayings abound when we don't pay attention to Scripture well enough and through prayer, you see, because then we make up stuff that's not true scripturally to try to make sense of spiritual realities. And you've probably all heard people say those kinds of things, and we'll tend to misunderstand experiences and misinterpret scripture and miss the priorities that God has for our lives if we're not prayerful people. Well, his disciples witnessed his glory even though they missed out on most of it that time. But we shouldn't miss out on it. We should spend time studying this event and meditating upon it and seeing the connections to the old covenant and extend that kind of study to all of scripture. I mean, how do we come to our times of prayer? Are we, are we prepared in prayer for God's glory to break forth from his word when we read it? 
by His Spirit's power? Might it be that some of our occasional spiritual confusion is the fact that we're not alert enough when we're reading and we're praying? We pray that more clarity might come when we read Scripture. And we should pray with a realization and an expectation that we're going to see everything fit together when we relate everything we read in the Bible to the incarnation, to the cross, and to the resurrection and the coming again of Jesus. Because that's how it all fits together. That's the storyline. And if we get sidetracked on all these other things that people can so easily get sidetracked on, then we miss the whole point of Scripture. And we end up looking like fools. But the center of all spirituality and life gets reconfirmed as we study the Scriptures, as we pray, as we gain a deeper and deeper understanding, as we see Jesus' glory, and we learn to read the biblical story the way it's put together for us. Well, the third scene is all about Jesus' glory, personal and redemptive glory in verses 34 to 36. Pretty simple. In verse 34, the cloud comes. Verse 35, the voice speaks. In verse 37, the silence descends. That's what happens at the end. It's a very fitting conclusion. The cloud shows up, the Father speaks, and they're silenced. And so we read, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is my son, a voice came out from the cloud saying, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So a cloud comes, envelops them all, probably all six of them. Uh, Matthew talks about how luminous the cloud is. The cloud is a common image in the Bible for the presence of God. And so if we go back again to the Old Covenant in Exodus 40, verse 34, we read about this common experience to the people of God then. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, right? The cloud, and meeting with God. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel. You see it also, the cloud symbolizes the new age as well, the new age of the new covenant and the kingdom. It promises even more than that in the future. So for example, not just this experience, but in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, in his ascension, right after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And in Matthew 24, 30, when speaking about his return, it says, when the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And that's when Jesus will return in his awesome presence. And then the voice out of the cloud speaks. God the Father interrupts this inept and bumbling speech of Peter. Terrified speech. He speaks words of rebuke to Peter, identifying Jesus as his son with whom he is well pleased. That's, this is the high point of this whole experience here, recorded by Luke for all of us. In other words, it's the key verse, verse 35. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. This reminds the reader of a similar phrase spoken by God the Father at Jesus' baptism back in the beginning of Luke chapter 3. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened, 
And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Again, these words combine a lot of prophecies. They combine the prophecy of Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2, verse 7, which speaks about Jesus, the Son, being the divine Messiah. It brings in the prophecy as well in quoting Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 53, that he would be the servant, the divine servant. He is beloved of God. And in view of the cross, he's the suffering servant who would accomplish redemption. It's yet another glorious experience and Trinitarian experience for us to observe in the Scriptures. So Peter and the disciples, and of course us too, are to listen to him. Listen to him when he speaks about his cross and the glory to be gained from it. I mean, it's a good thing, the cross. We're to listen to him when he speaks of his departure and what true discipleship and following him actually involves. Because it's very challenging and it's true. And so, let's listen again. So if we go back to verse 22, these are the things specifically we're supposed to be listening to. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I say to you truthfully that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You see, we need to be very careful not to substitute our own opinions for what would be most glorious for Jesus. The disciples did that often. Oh, the cross would not be a glorious thing for Jesus. So, of course, that shouldn't happen to him. What about for ourselves, you know, skipping the cross part in discipleship? See, if you skip the cross, you lose the glory. If Jesus skipped the cross, you lose the glory. If you skip the cross in your life, you'll lose the glory. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the only path. Jesus, as the Messiah, has declared that this is the path of discipleship. Now, at this point in the storyline, Matthew tells us that they all fell down on their faces in awe, and Jesus lifted them up. But then in verse 36, we have this silence. Jesus is left alone, presumably now back in the more normal glory veiled by flesh kind of appearance that he had. And his purposefully dramatic ending to this terrifying and terrific event that evening, Jesus is standing there in the center of attention. And we're supposed to stand in wonder and awe at him. And the disciples are silent, suggesting that they're thinking, they're reflecting on everything that they've just seen and everything they've just been told. And it's purposefully dramatic. And they're silent until the right time. And that right time would be after Jesus' resurrection. Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus giving them very specific instructions as to this timing. They are to be quiet about it until afterwards. And then Mark records that they go off by themselves and they discuss, what does this resurrection thing mean? Well, again, that's what happens when you miss a conversation. Otherwise, they would have known. 
But their message about this event would only make sense anyway at a later time. It would not make any sense to anybody if they went around telling people at that time. It would just add to the confusion and all the misunderstandings about who the Messiah would be and what redemption looks like and how it all works because everyone was focused on politics. And so the disciples themselves even aren't going to fully grasp the history of redemption anyway until the fullness comes at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit descends. That's when they'll tell people. That's when it gets written. And his father confirms his glory here, Jesus' glory, and would have us pay a whole lot more attention to his son and to gaze a whole lot more in admiration and awe at who he is. That's our purpose in studying it. You see, it all makes sense now. It should anyway. That his cross really is the focus of the history of redemption, that that's where our spiritual life comes from. It's what he accomplished on the cross. That's where our discipleship is patterned. It's what the transfiguration is really all about. It confirms to us this twofold glory. The personal glory of Jesus, because we get to read about it as the disciples saw it, and his glory in the cross, that he would be the redeemer of all those who put their faith in him and have their sins forgiven. You see, in our passage today, we, we've heard the prophets discuss this glory secondhand. We've observed the disciples witnessing the glory, and We've heard the Father confirm His glory, but we still might ask, you know, why is Jesus transformed or transfigured for the sake of Peter, James, and John? Why was He even transfigured for the sake of the church, even for ours, as we read about it in Luke's Gospel? It's so that we all recognize Him in His supreme glory for who He is and what His cross would be. We're supposed to marvel at Him with our mouths open at His eternal sonship. That's what we see here. This personal glory is opened up. We're supposed to marvel at his redemption glory. That's why he became man. He was incarnate. His life, his ministry, and his cross and his resurrection. It's all his redemption glory. And it continues. We're to marvel at what would come. His ascension into heaven. His reign from on high as king of all. And then his return when he will reign anew in the last stage of the kingdom of God. It's all in view here. It's all here in the transfiguration. And you can make this line of sight to all of these other passages in Scripture. I hope you see it. I hope you see better now how all of history of redemption is focused here because the transfiguration really should change the way we read the Old Testament. Hopefully you're not reading it with a veil over your face. But in Christ, it's all made clear. And so each of us has to take this home with ourselves. It's not just during this 35, 40 minutes that you're going to gain all of that. It takes time and reflection and silence, like the disciples, to express our whole being toward God and to understand. We have to take Luke 9 home with us. And this is, a, again, a key event in the life of Jesus between his birth and his cross. See, you have to preach it to your own soul, the riches of the glory of Christ. It has to fill your own heart if you're going to give praise and prayer and be lost in worship. Peter, the confused disciple of that day, would eventually write about that day, very specifically in his second epistle, to reassure us all of the truth of the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 or use the one in front of you in the pew. But 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16, because people like to pick on Peter, 
But, uh, you know, none of us are any better than him anyway, so. And later on, when he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is what he writes. For we, speaking of himself and all the apostles and the church, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were actually eyewitnesses of his glory, his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You see, he's referring directly to this event. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so, get this, we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have the prophetic word, for example, of Moses and Elijah made more certain. To which you would do well to pay attention. Sort of reminds you of what the Father said. Listen. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You see, if you pay attention, and you understand that in Jesus the prophetic word is made more certain, reading the Old Testament will even do this for you. It will fill your faith and your joy. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I love this passage in Second Peter. It's absolutely amazing in referring back to this event. And Peter wrote this to make us feel more certain, more assured that the gospel we believe, the gospel that Peter and the apostles preach, the gospel that we read about in Luke, that all of this is true, that everything contained in the Old Testament and the New Testament centers squarely upon Jesus Christ and his work on that cross. So may we at Calvary be further assured of the glory of Christ and the gospel of Christ both by this word and even as in a moment we're going to be celebrating through the Lord's Supper at this table. So go and worship the glorious Christ and go and proclaim the glorious Christ. I mean, He is your life. He's our life. And so this is a perfect day, it seems to me, in God's design to be celebrating the Lord's Supper because, again, we're reminded of His cross. And so it looks like The men are already forward, but if you're going to be helping us serve communion, please come up to the table at this time.